Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Carlton Ford is a nonprofit sector leader, innovative changemaker, and fundraiser for the arts. A native of Southside Chicago, he found his gift for music early and pursued a successful career as an operatic baritone, performing at the Metropolitan Opera, Carnegie Hall, Royal Albert Hall, and other main stages around the world, before taking his talent and vision to nonprofit leadership. Today, he serves as Chief Effective Philanthropy Officer at the Taproot Foundation, which drives social change by connecting social good organizations with skilled volunteers. In this conversation, we hear about the trajectory of his career as an artist and leader, the gift, and the inheritance. We begin with his earliest memories of finding his way to music. You and I started as artists in this world, right? And so the 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 torch that we picked up early on with art it was leveraging that, using that as the great both catalyst for conversation that it is, as the great equalizer that it can be. Right. You get you get someone who's, quote unquote, very erudite and, you know, has seen a million of inter X, Y, Z genre art form that seem to be high art. Right? You get someone who's new to it and they will have a different connection to it that will be meaningful and relevant to both of them. And maybe the, quote unquote, novice will have a more elevated emotional and emotive and connecting experience. And so, you know, so like, you know, I've I've learned to use everything that was poured into me as an artist, as a means of um, kind of framing leadership, fund fund development, um, um, fund design, strategy, all of this really comes from the lens of how do we do it together just based on everything I learned from the art. So when I think about these things, I think about it in the same creative, anything's possible modality that we learned from the arts um, and, uh, you know, try tr- have as many conversations as possible and see what starts to stick, see what chords resonate um, in that moment. And so that's that's why going away for four days, talking about leadership in the current age was both rejuvenating and very exhausting. So, yeah. <laughs> can, can you take me way back? And yeah. when did this fascination with the arts really start for you? Can you remember the earliest memories you have of this? So, uh, Jay, I, I'm, I'm happy to say after conversations with my family, I was able to, to know that the early memories I had, I was, they were able to validate some, some timeline here for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my first memories were, as are with many um, Black individuals, um, and African-American individuals were in the church. Um, so another way to say that is my first, earliest artistic memories and impressions were in community with others, mm-hmm. right? So enter any genre. That's what I understood is there's some emotion and electricity trafficking through this space when those individuals and those puffy sleeved robes are up there, right? Um, some people came for the sermon. I came for the music. And so those are my first iterations. And my family, um, I grew up in the South Side of Chicago. Um, and so 
my family had done the Great Migration and all come north from southern Georgia and from Memphis. But we really had in Chicago this very southern hospitality way of being a family um, and going to church together. So all of my extended relatives, we all churched at the same church. So church was when I saw my grandmother, I saw my cousins, I saw that. And then we'd all have lunch together. So the arts and church, all of that translated into very communal experience for me. Um, it wasn't till later that that translated into musical theater. And um, then a very interesting story that I just got clarity on as to what led me into classical music, which didn't happen until um, my my early teens. It was when I first found classical music, actually. But the music itself obviously resonated for you. Like you said, some people go for the sermon, the sermon. Other people go for the music. You also were there with family. Um, not just for me, but for people who might listen to this later. Can you talk about that church a little bit and the music that you heard there? Everybody's experience with that is a little bit different. Was this a was this a gospel service, for example? Was it what was it? No, thank you. Thank you for for pulling me back to that because yes, it was I was raised in a Southern Baptist uh, church okay. and Southern Baptist Southern Missionary Baptist Calvary Southern Missionary Calvary Missionary Baptist Church in Southside Chicago. And um what this was is it was your kind of your traditional gospel. There was a there was a band with, you know, there was an electric guitar, there was there was the drum kit. Um, it was a fairly sizable choir. The choir was known. They would tour around. So, you know, Sister Mary Jenkins was the lead, the, the, the choir conductor. And, uh, you know, it was it. She for me was like Patti LaBelle. I don't know if you know, you know, of course, you know, right. So, you know, Patti LaBelle and Aretha Franklin and Whitney Houston and, you know, these folks who started in the church and in this way. Uh, Mahalia Jackson, she had that kind of voice. And it was honestly, it was, I would say that may have, that could be characterized as my first operatic experience. It was the drama of the choir swaying in unison, and they would have different colored robes for a different day, you know, a different pivotal Sunday. And the 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 electricity of that moment um, was really special. And I remember I joined the choir really early on. Um, and so I was, you know, this, I think, uh, eight-year-old, uh, I think is when I started in the adult men's course. I never, I didn't go for the children's course. I was in the adult men's course. So I always like to, um, when I see something I want to have fun with, <laughs> I just jump in. So my dad, I don't know how he let them get me to be in it. Maybe there wasn't a kid's choir. I don't know. But I, when I see something really fun, I just want to jump in head first. And so, uh, we were there, we kind of lived in the church, right? We were there for Bible study midweek and every Sunday. And the the music was, um, again, it was the key moment for me. And it was a lot of the emotion that was trafficked through that directly tied to what happened um, later around age 13 when I found opera for the first time. And I can, you know, we can go into that moment, but it was that actually was a touchstone. When I first listened to opera, I had that, I was trafficked back to that same sort of touchstone of there was electricity. There was importance in that, in that moment that reminded me of the, of the gospel choir. So there you were eight years old singing in a gospel choir with the guys. Um, so you were clearly singing 
I don't know what part. I mean, you were not, was it, were you singing tenor? Were you able to sing even tenor? I was a tenor. I remember the moment. I remember the moment my voice dropped two octaves, right? So sometimes when I talk, folks say, well, you must be a tenor. And I say, no, you know, I play baritone. I can put on my, my voice, but um, I, I was a tenor. I was a very high tenor for a long time. Um, and, and then later on, I slowly started to find from gospel music, I found things like Fantasia. Um, and I found things through my public school. I was in the public school system. Um, they would take us on on field trips, right? So we'd go to nonprofits downtown at the Art Institute, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, right? I remember seeing my very first concert. It was called Sounds of Blackness. It was my very first concert. Um, they were a pop sort of R&B group um, back in the 80s. And uh, they were doing a concert in Symphony Hall, which is Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And I remember that was the first time I'd ever been in one of those monolithic institutions. So there I am in a classical music hall, seeing a a black ensemble surrounded by other black individuals. So honestly, now the more I think about it, I had such a beautiful bridge from music really inspiring me in the church to my first classical experience was surrounded by other black individuals listening to a concert called Sounds of Blackness. That was my first time in the classical concert hall. So when I returned later for, you know, Bach and, and Rachmaninoff and all these things, I, I thought, oh, well, this is my living room. <laughs> you know, I, I already know how to feel comfortable in this space. And, and so that, it's so funny, Jay, I hadn't put that through line together till now. Um, that was a really important, important part. From that point, it kind of took off very quickly um, once I started finding that I loved the classical symphony uh, environment, I think that's where I found my first Fantasia um, cassette tape. And so I started listening to that and listening to Nutcracker and I'd conduct in front of the the um, the, 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 the stereo in all in the safety of my living room. And I remember the first day there was Al Jarreau had a, had a recording with Kathleen Battle. And that was one of the first times I ever heard a classical artist. Again, it was in this fusion area, Al Jarreau, jazz, right? Jazzer with Kathleen Battle, classical voice. And I even remember um, thinking that sounds like a, a bird, right? And I learned it was a person and it sounded like a flute. And, you know, so listening to that voice slowly. So it was a very organic, it was a short stint of learning the arts, but it was a really organic flow. And it all centered from these getting near to um, these culture, these black cultural milestones, these culturally black musical milestones, you know, from gospel choir to Al Zero, ultimately then to the three tenors is when I first heard opera for the first time. Wow. It really strikes me that um, not that it would have changed your trajectory, given your, your, the, the resonance that this music had for you and your exceptional curiosity about all things. But it, that being able to see people on a stage in that venue who to a young man or boy um, looked more like himself than maybe if you'd, you know, uh, I don't know, gone to, I don't, I don't know what the equivalent would be, gone on a school field trip from the Bronx to the Met 
which was a very once upon a time, uh, a pretty white place. Um, I don't know how much it's changed, but it's but there's more today, more diversity of audience and performers than there was once upon a time. So your ability to see all that, synthesize it and and then obviously make it your own. That's really exceptional. It, but it raises a question for me, which is, I wonder what it was like for your parents. You described this, your family in the Great Migration all being there on the South Side, which is amazing, and all loving the music, which is also amazing. But did they have an experience like that? For them, as you then started to become attracted to these other kinds of music, what did they think, what's going on here, or did they get it? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I, this is a question I just asked them in preparation for our our conversation today, I wanted to hear what was that journey like for you, watching an artist developing? Mm -hmm. I said, did you ever have fears, right? So, so I, since, you know, and we'll get to this in the conversation, but I've done lots of fund development for all sorts of nonprofits and in, including our, our alma mater, right? Done some, some fund development work for, for, for arts boarding uh, schools and summer camps and, and all this. And a lot of times you'll get parents who say, well, you know, um, they're nervous to even start their 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 child on that pipeline uh, mm -hmm. early early on because what if they end up in the arts right I don't want someone to you know they think of the 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 trope of the starving artist and and a very real concern for artists to be well compensated and supported uh, in in their art but I asked my parents were you worried you were raising a, a black kid who said I want to go and uh, first it was. Um, just singing in general, didn't know the genre, to I found opera in a very um, a very short moment. From the moment I first heard opera to my first day landing at a boarding school was uh, within six months. My very first lesson to starting my first day at a boarding school for opera happened in six months. So, um, and I said to them, what was it like watching all that? And, what, and they said, we we wanted to support you to find your passion and we would we encouraged you and i remember this they would say you know shoot for the stars you'll land amongst the moon right shoot for the moon you'll land amongst the stars however you want to ver verbalize it and they really gave me that ethic you can do anything um try and it was the effort they encouraged effort and I, it was so innate in me. And I said, why did you want to be an artist? Did you, they said, they said, we wanted to raise you um, in a different modality than, than what we had been afforded. Right. So mm -hmm. both of my parents were first time college graduates in their, in their families. Um, you know, their, their parents hadn't, hadn't um, gone to college and, uh, and so I was the first in my line to get a master's degree, right? My, both my parents had a, a bachelor's. And, and so we together had pressed the boundaries on education and, and taking in more risks to get degreed and, and, to, and to take studies in these, in these areas of passion. And so that, that was important to them to just try a different route. And I remember when I first found opera, um, the reason why it felt like a fork in the road moment. I had, as we would imagine, if you can imagine, um, which I think given everything that, that is existing in the world, we all um, have been afforded the opportunity to sit and, and understand this and think about this. 
Um, black and brown individuals, especially then and particularly now and, and for a long, long, long time, as we know, um, have felt that our inheritance um, was one that I experienced, which was um, police brutality, um, poverty, um, drug addiction, drug abuse, right? So at an early age, Jay, I, I'd seen that very, very, very up close, okay? Um, and, and uh, you know, had some really horrific experiences early on that cemented in my mind, this trying new things isn't just for fun. This isn't just an after-school act activity. I'm, I'm actually trying on different gloves, trying new things that could be the other path, right? The fork in the road. So when I finally found opera, and I'll, you know, if I can, you mind if I just tell this story real briefly Please, here? Yes. So, so going going through the church and going through Sounds of Blackness at Symphony Hall in Chicago, ultimately, I started getting this, this real hunger. The way I learn is by reading templates of what's been done. I fell in love with biographies. I, the librarians were my best friends. I was in the library listening to cassette tape after cassette tape, reading every biography for every musician I could find, every periodical I could find. They would ship things in from across the nation for me to read them. I literally was there uh, about two hours a day and then more on the weekends. And I remember one day I came across this VHS. It was three tenors Dodger Stadium. Okay. I went home, put that in, and my, my whole life changed. They get to Nason Dorma at the end, one of, one of the final pieces, and I see all of Dodger Stadium just erupt, and it's like fireworks, and there's joy. And I remember thinking, I want to incite joy, not fear. In, 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 in groups and in the world and in society, right? I don't want my inheritance to be what I'm seeing on TV and what people are saying, black folks are, you know. So I, I wanted to run toward this other thing. And this reminded me of the church. This is what Sister Mary Jenkins was up there doing, right? This is when, when there's the yes and amen, you know, this was that, this version of that was so new and my parents had invited me to embrace the new, the uncomfortable, the unknown. So from that point, opera was my was my path. Um, and uh, like I said, it was a very fast six months from when I first heard formally opera. Took my very first voice lesson. I took my first voice lesson because I wanted to go to Juilliard. I, so I found out because I'm reading all these books mm -hmm. and everyone's saying, well, in opera, we, we went to, you know, we went to Juilliard, right? Okay. I was reading certain things and I started to translate for myself. Okay. Juilliard, that's a name. Okay. So when I went to spring break for the first time uh, to New York city to go see the Lion King, I said, well, before we go, can we go to Juilliard to do a tour? Turns out the elevator was broken down between the lobby and, and the second and the second floor. So in the stairwell, we had to take the stairs and I see this poster for Interlochen. And I said, well, what's that? Because the kids look like me. They look younger than the Juilliard kids. I said, what's that? They said, you know, a high amount of folks who go to um, Interlochen go to Juilliard, right? So this was Interlochen is, is in northern Michigan and it's an arts camp and it's a year-round learning um, haven uh, for, for adults, and it's an arts boarding uh, academy. 
um, a radio station so much, so much is there. And I said, oh, well, so I have to go to Interlop. And so if you're telling me, right, if Leontine Price made it to the Met by going to Juilliard, and Juilliard's telling me that there's a such thing called interlocking, okay, then I have to go to interlocking. Then I, then I find that interlocking requires you to uh, have an audition. I didn't know what an audition was. So I, I asked around my music teacher, and, and she said, well, to do an audition, you have to have some songs. I didn't have any songs. <laughs> I just know I wanted to go to Juilliard because I wanted to do what the three tenors did, but I knew nothing. And so I find a voice teacher. My parents find a voice teacher. And I had three months of lessons before my interlock and audition. I was accepted the same day. And three months later, I was um, a freshman. In well, wait, 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 wait. Okay. So what was your audition piece? My audition was uh, Rolling Down to Rio by Edward German. This uh, this this old, old art song. It was um, The Roadside Fire by Rafe Vaughn Williams. Um, and, uh, I think those were, my, I think those were my two pieces. I think those were my two pieces. Um, but I learned them in three months and, and, and went to Interlock. And, and so, you know, there, there's, there's so much there and we're, we're doing a lot of fast forwarding. I, you know, forgive anyone listening to this, trying to keep up. <laughs> <It's a lot laughs> well, this, and the thing is that Interlock is a special place as we both know. Um, you went there as a freshman. I yes. didn't, I, I had forgotten that. And going to that place for four years is an exceptional kind of experience at an exceptional place. Um, you come in as a very young person. I don't know if you were half the height you are today or not. Um, some of the people in ninth grade are, uh, but, uh, but a lot transforms and not just artistically. When you, when you leave family, you leave a place you know, and then you immerse yourself in this new thing. And not everybody uh, is like you in the sense that you might go to a place like that. You come in thinking nascent Dorma and you leave thinking, I don't know, uh, Sheena is a punk rocker or who knows what you're thinking. So uh, what was it like for you as you went through that and then being away from family? Because it sounds like family was a big core of how you were introduced to music. Um, and then it was a safe space from which to enter into this world, which is often uh, exclusionary, but you made it yours. And then you went to this place, which is in the middle of the woods. So what, what was that experience like? And how did you keep those threads together? That's a really good question. I was, again, I was hungry for, um, my curiosity was just insatiable. And so I felt, and you'll hear this from many folks who go to Interlock and whether year round or for the camp, it was, it was home. It really, it too was home. It was a different home, right? It was, it was a, it was a sort of, you know, um, it was the home you didn't know you had missed. You're meeting these artists for the first time. You're realizing, oh, there are others like me. There's a community of folks who love to see and hear the things that others can't see and hear yet, right? They create music where there wasn't music. Right. Singing in the middle of the woods. It wasn't a weird thing. It was it was just what we did. So I felt so at home and, it, and particularly because my parents, my grandparents, my aunts, my, my uncles, my cousins, everyone back home in Chicago was rooting me on. 
you know, uh, in a, quickly and in a hurry, my mom, ever being the event planner, planned this big trunk party, right? So I, I had this beautiful farewell where, again, as I talk about that fork in the road, what was otherwise societally seen as my inheritance and the path forward that I was uh, running toward, my family unanimously was supporting that. So that helped me feel very present, right? Um there, there was there was so much to discover, and I really loved being the the small fish in a big pond. Was it a welcoming environment for you? Um, it was welcoming from the standpoint of the artistic experience. I, I'll tell you, Jay, what I later found out is is I the path I went on, right, created in me an experience that I what I call and talk to other my colleagues with a similar experience. I was ethnically African-American. I was ethnically Black, but I was culturally raised white uh, from the standpoint of how much adherence to the principles of classical music and the path of classical music, it created, in in a very candid way I will share, it created a sense of divide in me. This is why DEI programs are critically important. We are raising young black and brown children who will be grown black and brown adults. And they have to understand you're in the safe space of an artistic haven, but you will emerge on the other side, uh, an adult who exists in the world. And still in this world, we need to be aware of the world in which that that we step into, okay. So, so I I I I actually did. I loved my my opportunities and my moments, and so that's why when I had the chance to come back and work with Interlock and and I was present when they did a, the great work of founding the DEI fund and things like this. It's principally important that those young adults, those young humans, um, have an opportunity to understand principally why art is important, why it is their calling in that moment, right? But then also how through through their ethnicity, their culture, right, they can integrate. There was an integration of all of that. That was a challenge later on. Um, but in the moment, I was full focus on Brahms, <laughs> right? So uh, it was, yes. Oh, all right. So I asked you your audition piece. So you probably did a senior recital. Yes. And so what was your capstone piece? Do you remember? My capstone piece of my senior side. Actually, it was right on King Jesus was my encore. But um, I I had just brilliant mentors there. Um, one of my biggest, biggest mentors, her name is Donna Brunsma. Um, she was a coach at the Lyric Rock of Chicago who had retired to Interlock in Michigan and so I would work with Donna. She taught Pavarotti Radames, the lead tenor role in Aida, note by note, because Pavarotti was famously did not read music. And uh, so she would tell me all these stories. I got to spend time with her. She brought me to Italy for my first time when I was 17. And, oh, wow. Um, and so I, I specialized a lot early on in Italian language work. Um, I was really happy to win concertos. Um, uh, which had been a long time since a vocalist had won concertos at at, at Interlochen. And I did um, Maurice Ravel's uh, Don Quixote al Ducine, so a series of three songs. Um, and it was it was just beautiful. So in four years, a lot happened. A lot happened in four years. 
And I know that's just the beginning of all the things you do. And for those who are tuning into this and listening, they wonder, must wonder what in the world we're talking about. But it actually really informs a lot. And one of those things is agency, which I know is a big part of. I don't know if that's a word used, but it's certainly something that you practice and you model. And you were just talking about making decisions for yourself, perhaps as much out of enthusiasm as anything as a young person and thinking about Juilliard and saying, can we go there? That's a real act of agency, but then you go there. So, so take us there. How do you, you come from Interlochen to Juilliard. Land, land in Manhattan, uh, finally in Manhattan. What actually with, with a speed bump as, yes. as happens in life. Okay. So let me, I'll share this. So I, I went to Interlochen to go to Juilliard. When I get to senior, my senior year, in order to apply, I apply, but I forget. I'm I'm a, enraptured with. I'm on this call with my girlfriend at the time, and and that that moment passes, and and I'm and I'm thinking, okay, uh, I can't wait to get the the response. Um, so I remember I, everyone's getting the responses. They've mailed in their application, and they're there's the recordings. I've done a recording, all of this. Mm-hmm. And I get nothing. I get no thank you, but no thank you, or thank you, and yes, have an audition. And so I have traffic back and I'm thinking, wait, I know I was on the phone with her when I was applying. and I never sent the application, Jay. I never sent the application. That was the whole reason I was at Interlock and was, (laughs) and I never sent the application. And so the head of admission said, well, do you want us to 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 lobby for you and and allow them to have you submit late and I said what's meant to be will be it clearly wasn't meant to be so I take I take two years and I go to Roosevelt University in Chicago for two years and I study with the great Stephen uh, Richard Stillwell there Judith Haddon I spend more time at the Lyric Opera than I could have ever imagined being able to get behind the scenes there which is my home opera company. Um, and then I actually apply. And so then I make it to Juilliard. But that that was another pivotal moment for me was um, uh, another principle of what's meant to be will be. Right. And so Juilliard was meant to be, but not not on the timeline, I thought so. Wow, no, that's, that's really interesting, because coming to terms with um, with decisions we make or, you know, accidents that befall us is. That's really hard for a lot of people, especially in the, you know, this whole world of nonprofit activities, civil society, where we're constantly barraged by things, sometimes under our control, sometimes not. And um, but we often just, you know, people will kind of throw up our hands or we just go into the same old patterns. You were finding a way to make things work, even as you said, you, you know, you accepted the way things were at that moment. Um, you went on to Juilliard, obviously, and and successfully there. And then you went on into a career for a number of years, quite successfully, um, as as an operatic baritone. Can you yes. just take us on a quick walk there before we jump into this next phase? Sure, absolutely. So um, one of the milestones that started at the at the front end of my journey um, through Juilliard in New York and international opera singing. So I got a chance to spend a week with Placido Domingo. Um, so oh, he, wow. and yeah. he was the reason, right? The three tenors. He was. Oh, I got to. I got to spend a week with him and tell him, Maestro, you're the reason. I went to this whole thing. And uh, so that was that was amazing. But I was I was very fortunate with the wonderful career 
Um, Carnegie Hall debut very early on in my Julia tenure, uh, worked with Metropolitan Opera, um, was very fortunate to be recorded on Oscar and Emmy nominated uh, works and it really ticked off everything on my list, sang at the BBC proms, the Royal Albert Hall, lived abroad. Um, and so I, I would say that all of my musical and artistic dreams came true uh, in, in a very, um, in, in a, in a very uh, blessed way. Um, and, and it was because I really leaned on my network of mentors and, and, and really kept that sense of curiosity. So imagine my grandmother's great surprise when I say, I'm going to retire. <laughs> I've, I've ticked off everything on my list. I, I'd sung all the roles that I, or at least at all the places, right? With all the people that my heart was so full. You know, I was never an artist that wanted to sing for the spotlight, right? Um, I was someone who wanted to sing because again, in the gospel church, it was about the community that coalesced for the musical moment, right? In Dodger Stadium, it was about the tears and the smiles that I saw on the, the, the families and the individuals when they sang the high note. It was always about the, the coalition building through the arts. So I reached a moment where I thought, well, this is amazing. I've got to learn from a whole host of amazing conductors. And I, over my career, I, I made a point to ask the conductors out for coffee or lunch and ask them, what does leadership mean to you? So I got this big list and journal of all these different ways that, you know, world-renowned stage directors and conductors think about leadership. And I finally thought, I want to bring this to the administrative suite. As an artist, I was so fortunate to spend my life um, exercising what folks would say was my passion, was my gift. I want to invite others into that sort of co-creative moment that artists get to really swim in. So imagine my grandmother's surprise when I say I'm going to retire from singing. She said, well, you know, <laughs> we prayed on my small group at church, prayed for you. We, you know, this and you and, and so and so I had to, I, I really had to do some searching. Why am I what what I came to Jay in response to my grandma? She's because she said, Why would you give up on God's gift to you? And I said, Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Is this my gift? A gift is something you can't take away, right? Um, and and it's frowned upon to re-gift it. A gift that's given to you, you don't, you know, you don't say, well, no, thanks. I can't. Once you get a gift, you have it. It's yours, it's your birthright. Was singing my birthright. And I thought, well, sometimes I get a really bad cold and I have to cancel a gig and I can't sing. And sometimes, you know, I could lose my voice forever. You see these singers, they lose their voice forever. Have they lost their gift? Do they have no utility to society and to the world and to themselves because their gift can't be activated? What about people who, you know, so I really start to pull apart that. And I thought, oh, no, singing wasn't my gift. It was the wrapping paper. It, it was the bow and the wrapping paper. The gift was in the box under the tissue paper in the middle of the thing, right? My gift was, is, has always been the ability to bring people together, the desire and the ability and the patience to bring people together, because it takes a lot of patience, to bring people together and the ability to translate. So when I figured that out, I went to organizational psychology. But before you go on to that, yes, I'm I'm uh, thinking about your experience watching that VHS tape. 
and then thinking about Leontine Price went here and that conversation with Placido Domingo and each of those cases, well, with the exception of Domingo, because he then ran an opera company, uh, but as an artistic director. But in each of those cases, those were people where it was clearly about performance and they decided to extend their career. So these were people you, I guess, admired, at least artistically. Um, and then you still decided you would walk away from it. Some people do a bit, a bit of a bite of both. I mean, the most famous example in New York is, um, why am I forgetting her name? I mean, the great operatic soprano of New York, Beverly, Beverly Sills. Sills, who for many years then was this great figure in the arts world there. Um, but you decided to go, I guess, directly into this path towards uh, leadership, support for the arts and for greater civil society and and for leadership specifically. Was it hard to pull the plug? Not not necessarily have a sense of ego, but because the role models you had developed that you embraced, in fact, decided, no, that I'm going to take my gift and I'm going to apply it that particular way. Interesting. Um, one of the last engagements I had was spending a little time with uh, Jesse Norman at Glimmerglass. And um, I, I did a masterclass with her and, and spent a little time chatting with her and um, made me promise her I would never stop singing. So that was enough. Um, but but uh, so I would say for, for moments like that, my grandmother, Jesse Norman, uh, my the, the role models that I had, um, it, it actually wasn't tough, Jay. It, it really wasn't. I felt called uh, actually as much. It felt like a continuation, right? I wasn't, you get more fuel out of the tank running towards something. Right? So again, this was another running towards something, right? This was a way for me to maximize. What was um, hard actually was getting me back on stage. Uh, so I, I founded an opera company with some friends, I co-founded an opera company with some friends in Charlottesville, Virginia called Victory Hall Opera. It is in its, I think, eighth season, doing very well. We did some amazing things, including performing at Monticello, the first group to perform in Monticello. Um, and uh, so through that and through other festivals, I, I take one opportunity a year to kind of <laughs> spread my wings again. Um, but otherwise, no, it, it wasn't hard because, again, I was still activating my core gift the whole time. Uh, so no, it wasn't hard for me, and I and I canceled uh, gigs uh, years forward, um, and it was a joy to 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 put my fellow baritones in those roles, um, and say, hey, you know, I can't do it, but you know, here's some, you know, and so no, it it, it wasn't tough. And the oddest thing is, I I retired without a job, Jay. So so it was tough for my parents to watch, but. Right. Well, that and that takes us to a little bit closer to the present in a sense, uh, because then you you went. It was pretty big departure from an outside view into what you did next. So talk about that a bit. So um, from there, I, I um, worked under an uh, industrial organizational psychologist, um, someone who did a lot of organizational management, change management work, got to learn different modalities of leadership, situational leadership, and you know just different different modalities that were um, the underpinnings in the way that uh, the for-profit sector speak. So she was really a consultant principally for for-profit. So I, I studied under that model and um, had the opportunity to start to exercise some of that as a fundraiser. Um, I was offered an opportunity to, to, to apply and fundraise at Florida Grand Opera. Uh, and so I started fundraising there and, and started learning, actually this ties back 
to, again, my earliest iterations um, that brought me into the opera house, remember, or into the symphony, at least. It was Sounds of Blackness, a, a concert where I felt at home in the environment. So some of the first things I fundraised for were programs that would that would support kids having those similar experiences. Um, despite the color of your skin, um, you had um, you should have the ability to feel at home um, in in these in these beautiful uh, organizations. Um, and so um, that was very exciting. And I was based in Miami doing that and really cut my teeth on that and and, and moved on from, from there. Uh, to the place we both know and, and love for a time at least, right? Yes. Yes. So there were, there were, there were several other steps in, in, in the journey, but ultimately, yes, found my way back uh, fundraising for Interlochen. Um, which was absolutely a homegoing and center of the target of what brought me to the arts, right? It was, how do I create these opportunities for other individuals, despite their background or their parents' bank account? Everyone, every child should have the opportunity um, in the same way I was graced to, um, to, to figure out what their passions are and their truest, truest gifts through their vocational talents. Right. And I'm sure that you have thoughts about leadership having been at all these places and seen how leadership is displayed, but I have a feeling you're probably going to be able to talk about that a bit in the context of your current work and how you're um, discussing a fostering leadership more broadly through Taproot. Can you talk about how you came there and um, and your current role and and what you're trying to, to work on? Absolutely. So again, um, the ability to know that communities, my belief, my strong uh, belief and study and understanding is that communities really grow and develop um, in partnership and on behalf of nonprofits in, in those communities. Yeah. So for me, my journey from the church pew to the Metropolitan Opera and beyond was because of the care and stewardship of nonprofits. So every summer I'd come back from Interlock and I'd go to my parents never, you know, they, 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 they allowed me that opportunity to go to as many nonprofit uh, trainings. I, I was trained in nonprofits outside of Interlock, right? Interlock in itself was a nonprofit. So, so my sense of how important nonprofits were to my journey is what is poured out over my work with Taproot. So Taproot Foundation was founded in 2001 and um, by a fantastic visionary named Aaron Hurst. And um, what Taproot does is it works in delivering pro bono service. So for those who hear that and think legal, right, we, it was sort of, you have that idea for the common good and, 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 um, and, and pro bono labor, right, on behalf of the common good. Um, that's what we do outside of the legal sector, right? So what Taproot does is it works for, for, with for-profit partners, right, and volunteers, to deliver pro bono support to nonprofits um, nationally and frankly across the globe. So if a nonprofit needs a new website, if a nonprofit needs a funding plan, a strategic plan, we will scope that project and we will recruit and, and provide support to volunteers to deliver that um, deliverable and that project to nonprofits for free, for free. So. It's, it's an amazing talking about coalition building um, and bringing people together being my greatest gift. 
That's what Taproot does. And so I'm a chief effective philanthropy officer. Um, and in building the, the, the team that is continuing to deepen Taproot's ability to leverage philanthropic support to create ways in which we can reach more nonprofits, engage more volunteers to do this work even deeper at scale. Uh, so that's that's one of the one of the big, big passions that I'm focused on right now. Well, you say one of, and I'm sure that another one does relate to that work there because the nonprofit sector is large and there are lots of organizations that need assistance. Um, but there's also a, a good number of nonprofits that have been traditionally ignored or where this whole discussion of a DEI, which I know you alluded to before, and we can talk about now if you wish, that the organizations that are addressing that, either by making sure that their boards, their staff, their donors are truly representative of the community of today and tomorrow, that that is not necessarily addressed. So is this one of the ways that you and your work at Taproot and beyond are trying to make sure that you know, there's there's a way for these organizations to grow and succeed. Absolutely. So there is uh, wonderful research done by the Building Movement Project. A, a colleague named Frances Kuhnreuter and her team there, Building Movement Project, did a put out a, a survey, a study called Race to Lead, and I, I uh, recommend anyone have access to it. One of the one of the findings, there are many, many, many findings in it. One of the findings are the challenges that Black and Brown leaders face when they enter as the first. Everyone wants to say, well, we have the first black or brown executive director, the first black or brown. There's a challenge there. They, they're what they're calling is the glass cliff, right? Um, and so what, what this is, is how, how are you preparing your organization, your community, your processes to, to steward leadership from a black and brown individual, right? It, is the community ready to engage and steward a leader um, that may have a, a different perspective on the work, perhaps, right? Or, you know, there are all sorts of things that that, that come with this. And so um, Taproot Center in our strategic plan is support of BIPOC communities, BIPOC leaders and nonprofits serving BIPOC communities. So there's a whole bunch of efforts that we're developing to make sure we can do that in a way that is equitably curated, right? Meaning both top down and, and bottom up, right? We are both moving... We're, we're doing philanthropy in the way I'm, I'd like to define it and think of it is um, it's the work of DEI. Instead of just um, funding the things as they've been, let us design together the way that we know it can work best and most equitably for communities. Um, so that's that's the work that that Taproot is, is doing. And that's a, supported by work I'm doing with them um, was was part of founding or uh, and continuing a DEI consultancy called Diaz Inclusion Consulting um, that works and uh, focuses on the arts and culture sector. Um, and so lots of great activity that that consultancy is doing, a robust network of partners that we've been working with over now three years. Um, and, and so it's wonderful to get the learnings of all different areas with principal um, principal um, through line between Taproot and Diaz Inclusion Consulting and also a board chair of a nonprofit orchestra based in Miami. Center of all of this is everybody in, nobody out. Um, so one of a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, uh, Ken Fisher, um, has a book uh, uh, by this title. He got this, this, this framework from a mentor of his. 
That's my ethic. Everybody in, nobody out. And I see DEI, the work that Taproot's doing, the work of the consultancy, the work of this nonprofit orchestra, is ensuring we're creating circles where folks can find their entry point, much like my, what my parents allowed me to do, um, to be included. Yeah. I'm wondering if you're seeing a difference, especially since you've been at Taproot, but maybe just over the arc of, of this career of yours, even though you were different places within that, that leadership realm, if you're seeing more appetite for finally uh, discussing, addressing, implementing these, these things you're talking about now, because we've gone through a, a very rough period societally in the United States over the last several years, for a host of reasons. Um, but sometimes people will talk about these things for a short time and then they just kind of fall off the radar. Um, do, you, do you sense that people are really ready to make some commitments to one another to make things more equitable? That is the question, Jay. That's, that's the question. Um, I, empathy is the way radical empathy is the way right if i were you i would be you and i mean radical empathy so if i were you i'd be you means if i were jay frost with your dna and your parents and your you know your makeup of neurodiversity and your height and you know everything everything down to your name having the the being a black man in america named carlton Folks already address me with a certain level of expectation, right? Even your name, right, is so important to who you are and how you're uh, how you're perceived both externally and how you perceive yourself internally. So if all of that was true for me, I'd be you. So it requires radical, radical empathy to a place that even as a, as a Black man especially is really hard for me to sustain. It's exhausting to sustain that level of empathy. But on the other side of it, is truly finding, okay, but I'm not you and you're not me. Mm -hmm. So now what do we do? What can we actually do together, right? There's a great quote by this Murray artist um, and um, her last name is Watson. For some reason, forgive me my, my her first name, Leela Watson, Leela Watson. Um, and, and the quote I'm gonna just paraphrase is, if you came to help, go back from whence you came. But if you came because you see that our mutual liberation is bound in the other, then let's go together, right? I think that we need to get to the mutual liberation point in order for the action, that the sustained action to really change systems. It is in our mutual best interest for us to go together. And I and the question is, are we ready? Um, certainly in the corners that I'm uh, discussing, right? We're making ourselves ever more ready. But I don't know how that resonates with you or, or, or the listeners here. But um, well, you just said something else in there, which is that it can be exhausting, probably even needing to explain it can be exhausting. So I hope you don't mind these questions. But I know you're working on it day to day in a very meaningful way, not just for yourself. You know, these are choices you make in your own career, but by digging in with the consultancy, with Taproot, by serving on that board, you are taking, once again, uh, the world on your shoulders uh, in a way for which we should all be grateful. But it does sound like it can be exhausting to be Sisyphus. So how do you 
how do you make that journey? How do you continually uh, restore your energy so you can go out not just to be yourself in the midst of all this and do just fine, thank you very much, but, but to try and bring others along? Celebrate the effort. I should have taken more of a pause before saying it, but it leapt out. Celebrate the effort. Don't celebrate the destination. Well, that's what you said your own parents were all about, right? Was celebrating the effort. And celebrate the effort. I got up this morning, right? And and it and I, it feels crummy, but I'm just going to sell it if I can get one thing, right? That having that ethic of let's acknowledge the challenge, but let's celebrate that we're going to at least keep trying together. That's effort to celebrate because there's a world in which we already stopped. There's a world in which we already gave up, but we're not there. Let's celebrate the fact that we haven't yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, in, in that, it, um, it is very much what we got from the arts, right? How long do you sit as, do you hear these artists practicing that one note, that one note, they will spend five hours on something that will last for half a second. <laughs> but, but the pride that came with, I know I really put my heart into all those hours. And you're right. It's, it's actually in the process of doing it together that I think we learn how to be a more informed philanthropic sector. We learn how to be a more informed uh, cohort of leaders, right? How do we listen to dissent and sit still looking at each other and realize if I were you, I, 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 I very well and in, in actuality fully would do and think what you think, but I'm not. If we can stay in that very uncomfortable spot together long enough and celebrate the effort, I've, I've seen folks be able to make it to the other side. You know, it's, it strikes me also that much of what we're talking about now, and we have been for, for a bit, is about the adult world. Um, that we're, whether it's, uh, again, being on the stage and singing or whether it's helping these organizations to go where they need to go, all these things you're doing. A lot of it is with people who are already in the middle of, uh, of their lives and their professional lives. You made these decisions, some of these decisions quite early. And it sounds like in the midst of watching a lot of things happen in the neighborhoods where you grew up that were rather tough. Mm -hmm. When you think about that, and then you think about the kids who are like, like you, maybe back in the neighborhood, I don't know what the neighborhood is like where you, where you grew up now, but what is it like for kids? And do you have any thoughts on how to make it so that when they come up like you did, this world is as is open to them as as you made it open to you or you found somehow a path? I would say, honestly, the path found me. Um, I was listening to a great and this is, again, for our colleagues who yeah, fundraising is hard. <laughs> we 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 know it, right? We're speaking. We are preaching to the choir here. Mm -hmm. A great book called *The Untethered Soul* that I have found very meaningful in my journey to getting out of the the internalized think that is tough when you're trying to do good and you see it's just taking so long and you think, why didn't I meet the metrics? And why do you know you have to you have to be able to reinforce yourself internally to make sure you can show up in in authenticity, and so. Um, you know, one of the things that I think as adults we're trying to bring back is how do we have a sense of, uh, first off, imagination? 
how do we bring that bring back that imagination and how do we bring back that we we fall we can cry for a bit but we brush ourselves off and we ride again right how how do we bring back in right and nowadays we right we well, so we understand that as resilience right and we understand that as 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 visionary creative but it's 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 how do, how do i allow myself to know uh, and really believe that the things are that are coming at me are coming at me to teach me something and to and to get out of my head and you know so and especially as a fundraiser that's one of the real gifts that one can harness when you're on a call with the funder is there's information coming at you and if you're not constantly just strategizing what am i going to say on the other this right this is that active listening muscle that 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 people cultivate um I, I think that that's what's principally important in bringing that sort of childlike uh, authenticity is, is the ability to have that imagination and, and resilience. I think definitely what's really hard nowadays, I mean, when I was coming up, um, I still had World Book Encyclopedia, right? I still didn't, I, I knew what was happening on in the world as, to the extent of my cul-de-sac, you know, um, and there was some traumatizing and, and, and pretty, uh, you know, I remember watching my father um, pulled over for a tra traffic stop when I was in kindergarten. It was my, actually one of my earliest memories was being on the way to kindergarten and watching my father, a six foot something black man get pulled over by a police officer and asked to uh, interrogate and asked to be followed, uh, to follow them to the station um, and interrogated for driving while black. And um, that's a part of that inheritance that I that I mentioned at the start is I, I didn't want, I thought to myself, how can I create a world in which um, I can encourage things like this to happen less often? Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, the, 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 the kids today, of course, in this globalized uh, way are dealing with a lot of stimulus. Um, but I think ho hopefully through the arts, at least those that I'm, I, I've had the, privilege to mentor, it, they find their way forward through their imagination. They can imagine a world in which things can be better. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.